everybody, and welcome to Listen Money Matters. How did you go bankrupt, Bill asked. Two ways, Mike said, gradually and then suddenly. My name is Matt, and I'm here, as always, with Andrew. Andrew, how are you, and what are you drinking? Ooh, I, I didn't know if you'd be able to nail that, but... Nailed uh, it, like, dude. Professional. You know, <laughs> I, I'm drinking this beer. I pulled it out. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know you could read it when I got it out, and you're like, oh my god, I just saw year. the I just saw the tip when you pulled it out, and I was like, I know what that is. <laughs> no? Anyone? No? Crickets? Crickets? I, I understood. Okay. My <laughs> innuendos? Uh, but I did. I, that so, was a true statement. Goose Island is good. You yep. know, I enjoy it. But they had this like fancy bourbon county brand stout that I got. Yeah. Um, I love, you know, anything in a bourbon barrel. And yep. it is maybe the best one that I've had. I mean, I was, look, like delighted when I drank it. For an ABI company, which I tend not to drink, I stay far away from because they're just a giant corporation that sucks the life out of craft beer nerds everywhere. And that's um, the thing. It kind of like makes you not want to try I, it. Yeah, but man, that Bourbon County, that stuff mm-hmm. is really good. I love it. I'm out. I, you, you drinking a big ass stout on a Thursday morning. And for me, it's almost 11 a.m. So whatever. I just, I just decided to go into my beer fridge and pull out Evil Twins. Cafe Jesus or Cafe Jesus, mm. Imperial Stout with coffee added, twelve percent. Although wait, it says yeah, twelve percent, because I think all their beers are twelve percent because it's imported by twelve percent LLC in Brooklyn. So every evil, it's you said it was Evil Twin, right? Yeah, Evil Twin. Yeah, they're like they all put me under the table. And there's like well, big money gonna... one with a like pizza and be- and like yeah, shit. Well, anyway, our catchphrase today is from uh, none other than Ernest Hemingway. Thank cool. you for sending that in, Ernest. Yeah, thanks, you Ernest. You are awesome. A gentleman and a scholar. So, <laughs> <That's> yeah, <right. laughs> yes, and, and a big booze drinker. But listen, we're talking, you heard another voice already on the show. We have a returning champion of Listen Money Matters, Aaron Lowry. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I just had to interject a couple times already. I was no, please. too excited. So of course. just had to jump no, right in there. I wish more guests would. I know they they wait, but I'm like, no, we should have it like a whole thing, like a round robin. But we're gonna talk today about investing. And we're we titled this episode The Anxiety of Investing, since uh you have a new book that's out. Um, and what's the name of the book? Broke Millennial Takes on Investing, a beginner's guide okay. to leveling up your money. So we're talking to millennials. So I figured uh we had it titled The Fear of Investing, but then we're like, well, anxiety is more of a millennial type of thing <laughs> i certainly have it andrew you have do you have anxiety yeah aren't we all diagnosed Aaron? with that i thought that that was just coded into so. our dna yeah so i think so now yeah, yeah. Like right now we're getting out the fainting couch laying down mm-hmm. gonna kind of go our weighted through. blankets oh weighted blanket you know i had never tried one until just last month i was visiting my sister in la and oh mm-hmm. my god goodness she brought it out and she goes i think you should try sleeping with this and my husband and i used one and it was just amazing really i i so steph has one and i used one the other day and i'm like i I don't like when people lay on me and it felt like a human like a really like light person was laying on me and i just was hot and i'm like get this goddamn thing off well I didn't maybe like you it. need one that's more properly weighted to you because it is supposed to be like oh her- maybe like so many pounds for the body weight that you have or something, which is why it's hard oh. for people to share them, especially men and women, since we tend to be different sizes. So maybe that's what it is. But it goes but back it, yeah. to, did you ever, and we're going way off topic right now, but did you ever watch the Temple Grandin movie? Yeah. Yes, the hugging so like, machine. That's what she it created. is yeah. for humans. Mm-hmm. Not Hopefully we're not about to get mm-hmm. slaughtered, but like, that's what it is, <laughs> which that was a deep cut right, reference. Yeah, if you like, haven't watched that movie, she creates this basically hugging machine for cows to calm them down before they go into the slaughterhouse, which sounds just absolutely atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> and she yes, used it yeah. for herself. She's autistic, and that yeah. was something that they found yeah. like was a calming force. I've seen that movie twice. Clara Danes yep. plays Temple Grandin. We the Temple Grandin school is here in Boulder. So Oh, I did not know that. Couple of connections. All right. Not bad. Let's talk about investing. How about that? I think we should probably bring it back around. People are probably wondering what the heck we're talking about. Well, so so you have this book. You you are a millennial, I, I would hope. I am. I'm twenty nine. Right? Staunchly in the middle. Twenty nine. I am 35. That I count, you right? You do. You're on the, the older think, end, but we're aging towards 40. People forget it. They still think of us as like yeah. recently graduating from college. It's actually Gen Z that is in mm-hmm. college right now. 
Right. You and said you were 29. And I was like, oh my God, she's older than me. And then I forgot I'm 35. I'm yeah. Like, For, forever young. It's fine. Yeah. What, like, all right. So I, I consider myself a millennial, but I consider myself a zennial, right? They call them zennials, like the, when you're on the, 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 the older end of things. And so I feel like I have a different perspective when it comes to that. And I don't, I, like, I didn't go to college. So that's one thing. And like 2008, I had already been working. I was already, I already had a job. Like I wasn't graduating college. And I know that was a big deal for a lot of people, but I, I have a feel like I know some things like one, uh, my parents work in the housing industry. My mom's a real estate agent. My dad is a kitchen designer. And they're saying that like millennials are just not buying houses, right? That's one of the things that we hear because they literally can't afford it. And I kind of wanted to, I don't know if your book covers this, but like millennials have different, a different financial struggles, struggles than even my generation and our parents' generation. What are those? And does that stop them from investing? Like, are they literally not investing because they're like, well, fuck, I can't even buy a house. So what, what do you mean I'm going to invest in the stock market? Yes. And it's a combination of a bunch of different factors tying back to the anxiety one. It is the witnessing of the Great Recession that Mm -hmm. did freak a lot of people out. And the messaging that people then got from their parents or grandparents, some of whom lost a huge chunk of their retirement portfolios. There were mass layoffs. It was hard to get jobs. There still is wage stagnation. There are a bunch of different Mm. factors that just generally freaked people out about the market and created this sense of complete distrust, which is one area that I do get into and that I I do think gets attributed as to why millennials aren't investing. But another huge one are the financial burdens, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better term, that we're contending with, student loans being a big one. You know, if you have a $350 monthly payment on student loans, you're not making a ton of money, you've got other financial goals, investing probably is going to go on the back burner. Especially because it also involves you having to educate yourself about the market. So it's not just an easy, oh, I can just dump some money in here and call it a day. It's this whole self-education process because we never get taught this at any point in school, often not by our parents. Sure. Probably not. And, and, I, and you know, we'll never a conversation probably. Around like, oh, hopefully we're going to get financial no. literacy into schools. I mean, we'll see. But a lot of it really always has to be independent. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And if we do, it's going to be like a huge bank that that bankrolls it and it's going to be like, you know, oh, use yes. Chase or use Wells Fargo <laughs> or whatever. I, I can I'm seeing that already with a lot of these like um, financial literacy education startups. It's true. You know, they're getting funded through, you know, big banks. Not that that's a terrible thing. But it could be. And I think the other problem as well, when you're talking about trying to teach financial literacy in, let's say, middle school, high school, it's not applicable yet. It's very hard to learn about something that's so abstract when it's not something that's part Mm. of your day-to-day life. And I I don't know that it will really click for that many people until they are in it. I know that if I... I mean, I did learn how to balance a checkbook as a kid, but from my parents, that's not something that I like actively, Mm, I know, but a lot of my story has to do with that. Right. And I don't think that's something I really actively engaged with until I was, you know, out in the quote unquote real world trying to make it and thinking, oh, okay, got it. Right. And there are little ways that parents can teach their kids about money that's more visual. You know, I recently interviewed a woman who said that her parents in cash, took a month's worth of the family income and put it on the table and then said, you know, this amount is our mortgage. This amount is the car payment. This amount is Mm. your activities. And then like winnowed it down to this tiny pot at the end of, and this is what we have left over to do, like fun family things or to pay for the pair of shoes that you want that you don't necessarily need as a way to take the abstract and make it very tangible for younger kids. And I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, that is brilliant. But That isn't, first of all, some families don't want to reveal how much they make, which I get. Sure. And the other thing, though, too, is that's not necessarily her personal financial situation. That doesn't necessarily connect on a way that's going to make her better with handling her own money. It just gives her a better understanding of the family financial dynamic. Right. But are there, like, but for millennials, that that obviously plays into that. I mean, we didn't learn, but neither did our parents, right? 
Uh, I, it's do, hard do, to say. Are there differences? Like, are, I feel like their parents maybe taught them more. Or there's a better think? chance. Or I think it's just yeah. we, every generation has their own battles. And I that is one thing I'm mm. always kind of hesitant with the millennials is we sometimes get positioned, and I don't know that it truly exists the way that the media says it does, about this like, woe is me, our lives are so hard. The one thing that I really hate too is this whole like, I'm not saving for retirement because the world is going to end before I sure. retire. That's that's the new one that's been coming out lately. Yikes. Um, let's look back at the previous couple of generations and what they had to deal with. Between World War II and the Cold War in Vietnam, yeah. it's not like we're the first people on the block to ever have a rough deal as a generation. You know what? That's I'm glad you brought that up. I had a conversation the other day where, where I was saying, because um, it feels very doom and gloom right now, just in general. I'm like- um, our parents had to hide under desks in their in their classrooms because they were afraid a fucking <laughs> nuclear bomb was going to explode on us. We don't have that problem. I'm sorry, but the shit that we're dealing with now is not as bad as like the shit that my dad has talked talked to me about and when he was growing up in school. And every generation has it. Like they have their shit, yeah. they've got their stuff. And it's funny to me that eh, funny is probably not the right word to use, but <laughs> hilarious. It is I think that the way it gets spun is that we act like the media portrays us as acting like special snowflakes. Sure. Um, Every generation has. It is the obligation of every generation to shit on the generation that comes after them. So I'm sure we're going to do stuff to Gen Z when they full force get into the job market. I'm Mm -hmm. full confidence that'll happen. But also, I always like to joke, we did not give ourselves the gold stars and the participation trophies. We were not responsible for the self-esteem movement. Thank you very much. So you created these monsters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. But I mean, they. But there are problems, right? I mean, our parents and even my like the like we have houses. You know, at twenty, I had a house at twenty-five. Not that I could be the exception to the rule for sure. But I is it true that millennials are not? buying are not buying houses at the isn't it and is it because they're being paid less like where why is there such a adversement to investing or is there or am i completely off with that well investing and home ownership are two completely separate things first of all i do sure. see the home ownership thing i don't think is as big of a deal as it's portrayed to be i don't think many yeah. urban millennials are buying homes I live in New York yeah. City. I don't have a cool like three million sitting around somewhere to go out and buy an apartment here. That's just not happening for sure. me. But my friends, almost all of my friends who live either in a cheaper city or not in a city own oh, homes. Okay. I am the last one except for my New York City based friends. Sure. And like to the point where just two weeks ago, the other holdout who's based in Atlanta it within two weeks bought a house. Like she and her mm-hmm. husband just decided like, no, we're going to buy a house now. And then just went out and bought a house. It's the phasing into it. Things are happening a little bit later for us than for prior generations. But I don't think that it's purely based on the recession. I don't think that it's purely based on money. Women are more educated now. Women are building careers now. Women are delaying having families now. Mm-hmm. Both men and women are delaying getting married for a variety of reasons. And I think it's more like, okay, we didn't do it at 25, but maybe we're doing it at 30. And we're just now having a bunch of the generation kind of phase into that age. Why do you think it happened so late? Why do you think it's happening later for this generation than it did? Are we just living longer? Or are we just, our priorities shifted? Well, we'll see. It's it's hard to tell if we're living longer yet. But (laughs) I I think some of it's priority, some, a lot of it's opportunity. Mm. And I just, Look back even at my mom's generation. And for context, my mom's in her early 60s. I don't think she would mind me sharing that. And it wasn't as much of a given that if you were a woman who got married and started a family that you could stay in the workforce. Women certainly did, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't necessarily the template. Mm. And I think for millennials, thankfully for all of the work that generations before us did, we have far more opportunities now to pursue our careers in different ways. Hmm. We have birth control in different ways so we can procrastinate having a family. We have opportunities to freeze our eggs and start families later. We're kind of going down a complete tangential rabbit hole right now. But I do think that all of those factors are part of the reason that millennials are coming at the game a little later because we have the choice to come in Ah. a little later and we're cohabitating earlier. So you don't have to get married in order to live together. It's not so much of a stigma anymore. So why 
quote unquote, rush into getting married? Or maybe why get married at all? That might not be something that's a priority. Mm -hmm. Well, if millennials are waiting longer to have kids, potentially buy a house, get married, women are are working now, unlike much of our parents, um, you would think that they would have more money or at least more sloshing around to perhaps invest or, I don't know, go bungee jumping or or skydiving. Like, is this not true or are they just you know it's a case of too many lattes oh, yeah God, right that's the one i hate it <laughs> that's the one as i sit here drinking my iced latte <laughs> uh, and my cafe um, jesus <laughs> so i also think it's important to look at we are like myself very much included looking at this at like very broad brush high level there are sure ton, like millions of the millennial generation who had kids in their early 20s are in like a very different place mm-hmm. um so i do think it is always important to acknowledge that but to we're your co- question we're coastal too yeah, yeah. and to okay. your question i would say first of all just because we're working longer before we start having a family, we do have unprecedented amount of student loan debt. So it doesn't mean we necessarily have a ton of extra discretionary income for those who went to college. Um, I would also say wage stagnation is very real. The amount of money that we're earning now is not necessarily, if you adjust for inflation, the Uh, same amount that our parents were earning at the same age. And so our parents, while the number is different, if you adjust for inflation, we, a lot of us are earning less than what our parents were pulling in. We also don't have the same amount of job security necessarily that our parents had. Unions are a very different thing. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of the gig economy. There's a lot more people working with variable income or having to work multiple jobs in order to live what they perceive to be a comfortable lifestyle or even just get by. So I'd say it's a lot of those factors. Women are, are working. You know, we have all these tech jobs, and so there, there's money. And you know, 2008 is way past in the rearview mirror. So long ago. Uh, uh like uh. <laughs> it, this is the new normal, right? Like we, it'll only be uh, you know less job security in the future. We'll be contending with robots and stuff. Um, like yeah, but we'll have universal income then. So. <laughs> Problem and solved. I, it might have to move to a different country for that. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. But And no I way. agree with you. I do think that it's, we're not going to revert back to the way that it was at any point, nor am I advocating that we necessarily should. Right. But I do think that those are all systemic reasons for why the investing thing maybe takes a backseat in a lot of people's minds. But I think the biggest factor is intimidation. Language gets used that mm. we don't understand. It is kind of hard to decode in the beginning. It definitely Mm -hmm. takes some time. And my biggest kind of soapbox thing right now, if you will, is the language that we use even when we say something as simple as save for retirement. You're not saving for retirement. You're investing for retirement. But people who have a 401k Mm -hmm. or an IRA or a 403b do not think of themselves as investors, but they are. Sure. That's So yeah, the language part of it applies to everyone. It's not mm-hmm. just a millennial thing or a, a Gen Z thing or whatever. Like it applies to adults right now. Like like my parents are like I don't understand these terms or you know, oh we didn't like my parents didn't start saving for retirement, quote unquote, until I think they were like in their late 40s maybe. And it's and it's like why how do we, you know, one, I know it's a big question, how do you change that? And but two, like I specifically for like this, this millennial generation who isn't getting paid nearly as much as the previous ones does have a lot. A, a sh- I am assuming way more student loan debt than our parents, right? Like that is a, that's the real fucking problem. It, it's an us thing. It, it's less of a them thing. They weren't really and going were, to college. I mean, the, the college was cheaper. And there were more options were if you didn't yeah. want to go to college. They're, sure. they're just to try to even get jobs in that are what, for lack of, again, a better term, blue collar, as we would call it. Sure. A lot of times you still have to be a college grad now. I mean, it's unbelievable the right. restrictions in order to get access to decent employment now. And I look at, even with my in-laws, my father-in-law, who he did not go to a four-year college. He has it, later in life gotten an associate's degree, but he went and worked at, um, he was in a factory and actually has just recently worked mm-hmm. his way up into an office job. But after 30 plus years of working there, 
but he was able to make good money. He raised three kids on like a comfortable, you know, not a ton of frills, but Mm -hmm. definitely comfortable lifestyle. That is really hard to do these days for our generation. I don't think those jobs are as prevalent anymore. Okay. Wage stagnation. Definitely a thing. I've seen the graphs and I know that there are a lot of terrible, dire things. And to be perfectly honest, Aaron, I really agree with you on everything. Uh, I feel the same way. My question is, uh, is that a valid reason to not invest? And then maybe the other, well, then the other one is like, do you think that millennials can retire or whatever this phase of life after working is for them? Can they do that without investing? No, I don't think you can without it. Mm -hmm. You have to invest. Well, all right, let me walk that back for a second and say if you don't invest, you're going to have to save so much more money in order to reach the same Mm -hmm. goal. And that's the calculation I would encourage anyone to do. Let's say that hypothetically, you need a million and a half dollars in order to retire 30 years from now. Well, just do the math. Use There's a compound interest calculator that the SEC has. On, I think it's investors.gov is the link. I'll send it to you. You can put it in the show notes. It's my favorite one to Damn use. Right. So let's just say that you start at 30 and you're putting mm. in, let's say you start with $1,000 and you're putting in 200 bucks a month and you get a 7% average return. Looking at what that number is, which I cannot pull out of my head by myself, sure. I would have to put it in the calculator. I thought you were like no, paraphrasing no. from your I, book, like in I, your mind. I probably <laughs> need to have those little, those blips, but I don't. So compare that to if you just saved the same amount of money. And also, let's Mm -hmm. say if you work backward and you've come up with your financial independence number and hypothetically it's a million and a half dollars, divide that by just purely saving. And probably you're having that in a 0.01% interest savings account, which if you do, get it to at least 2%. Those are very easy Mm -hmm. to find right now. Sad. Yeah, so sad. (laughs) But if you just purely try to save, the amount of money you have to put aside is absolutely asinine. And one of my favorite quotes in the book is one of the women I interviewed said, when you invest, your money does some of the heavy lifting for you. Mm -hmm. If you can't stomach the idea of investing, that's fine. You're just going to have to save a whole heck of a lot more. And she's, I just loved how easy that and actionable that advice is. You don't have to invest if you don't want to, but it's going to make your life a lot harder. Yeah. So... If millennials have anxiety on all the things that we've described, they should maybe also have anxiety on not investing while being anxious about investing. It's very true. This is just stirring up all the feels for everyone, I am sure. We've gone down a lot of different roads. But to me, the first couple of steps that you have to take, first of all, I like personally, I'm a history nerd to begin with. But I look at the history of the stock market as a way to kind of deal with the fear of the Mm. stock market, because I am not immune to the fact that when we're going through a market correction or if I check in on my portfolio and there's the angry red down arrows and I've seemingly lost money, even though I don't sell, so I haven't locked Mm -hmm. in my losses. Yeah, I'm not immune to feeling some type of way about that. But it is really helpful to look back at the history of what the market has done and know it is cyclical. What goes around comes back around. It is going to ebb and flow. You are going to have moments when it goes down and it is a little bit painful, but those are also great buying opportunities. The stocks are on sale, as people like to say. And it's kind of looking to the past to no one can predict the future performance of the stock market and I cannot guarantee anything for you. Legalese disclaimer Mm -hmm. here, but it is going to come back up Well, and you have to write it out. Yeah, unless you're that doom and gloom person who is like the world's coming to an end and then yeah it's it's crippling because i can i can i can totally see that they're just watching but their i can see that now yeah counting for sure. down the second but i'm sure that they are- i mean you can but what are you gonna mm. do like all yeah. right let's say that let's say worst case scenario in that person's situation is honestly the best case scenario the world doesn't end right and you live well into your 80s and if you haven't prepared for that Sure. It is. a You are setting yourself up for a doom and gloom scenario. And it really is the whole cliche, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. But it's sort of the inversion where the best is, hey, you're alive. Or the worst. I guess the worst in that case is, hey, you're still alive. (laughs) You're 80 something and you don't have to eat cat food. Yeah. So if you want to be a true doomsday prepper, prep for the fact that you're going to be broke at 80 years old. Because that'll be a real fucking doomsday. 
I do like thinking of myself as a financial doomsday prepper in the sense of how much I like to invest and save. Like I think about that as making sure that I am protecting my future self from any negative scenario. Well, I want to talk about specifics if you want to get into like what like actionable things that anyone can do based on what's been in your book, based on just what you've done personally. But before we do that, I have to take a break. We have to take a break all together and we'll be right back. All right, we're back. <laughs> so um, I have a very specific question. We get this question a lot, I think, when we do five questions, when we, you know, just I'm sure, I mean, Andrew sees a lot more of the questions that come through from our listeners than I do, but student loan debt versus investing. A lot of people say, oh, should I pay off my student loans before investing? Should I be uh, investing and paying the minimum amount of my student loans because I'll get a better return with investing than I would, obviously, with student loans? Uh, should I do them at the same time? What is, do you have specific advice for, for people with student loans who also should be investing? Yes, it's a whole chapter in the book. And that is a question that I asked every expert I interviewed was, should you be investing mm. when you have student loans? So first, okay. again, on my soapbox about retirement, because it is investing, yes. that is the underlying answer to all of this. You absolutely need to be investing into a retirement plan while you are paying down your student loans. Obviously, people tend to focus more on you are traditionally employed, you have a 401k, you get an employer match, at least take advantage of the full employer match, if not putting in more. Sure. Now, the three of us sitting here are not traditionally employed, as is evidenced by us recording nope. this in the middle of a work day. <laughs> <laughs> While drinking. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> While drinking. So I also think that it's really imperative for people who are self-employed to take that message to heart because you... Mm are the one who has to handle it for yourself. You are your only advocate in this case. So first I'll just do a little bit of advice for those guys and then I'll pivot back into student loans and retirement. Okay. If you are self-employed, the way I personally handle this is you have to save for your taxes. You know that every time you get paid, the rule of thumb is you should put aside 30% of that paycheck in order to have money set aside for your quarterly estimated taxes and then paying taxes on your annual return. Mm -hmm. I go to a bit of a too high percentage to some people, but I kick that number up to 45%. And I do that Damn. for a couple of reasons. I live in New York City, so I pay federal, city, and state tax. So I like to have oodles of money set aside for taxes. But then on top of that, any money that's left over after I pay my quarterly estimated taxes, I dump into my SEP IRA. So it's an automatic Ooh. way for me to be preparing slash investing slash saving for retirement. Mm -hmm. That's an awesome trick. Yes. And I highly recommend that if you are self-employed, you start with 35%. If you can push it up, maybe every six months, push it up a few extra percentage until you get to whatever your ideal number is. But it mm -hmm. really makes sure that you have this nice nest egg that you are constantly putting into your retirement account. So that's my advice for the self-employed. Now, for just everyone in general, when we're looking at balancing student loans and investing, I think primarily what we're actually asking is about taxable investing. So outside of our retirement accounts, because you absolutely, yes, need to be putting money away for retirement. But if you're asking, all right, should I be investing in a taxable account? So index funds, mutual funds, what have you, mm -hmm. the number, the magic number is five. So if your interest rate on your student loans is above 5%, the experts that I interviewed with the exception of one who said seven, but the general consensus was five said, if it's above 5%, probably makes more sense to focus on getting rid of the student loan debt quicker. No one ever seems to regret paying off student loan debt quickly. So that's just kind of an automatic right. win. Now, if it's under 5%, maybe you just have a great deal on federal loans. Maybe you refinanced and you got it down to like 3 or 4%. And your risk and debt tolerance emotionally, mentally allow for you to be investing in a taxable account, then the math probably does shake out in your favor. It can make sense to do them in tandem. Mm -hmm. But I do think it's also important to recognize that if you just hate having that debt and it is just an anchor on your life, there is no problem with aggressively trying to pay those down and pressing pause on taxable investing until mm -hmm. you're done. Just make sure that you're also investing for retirement in tandem. Now, would you sooner skew towards that than you know, set, putting, say, pause on the student loan debt and just investing. Do, do you feel that it applies either way or I don't only? Know. Okay. 
The reason I don't is one, I have a low debt tolerance, but two, yeah. paying off student loans is a guaranteed return. Investing is not. So mm. if you find yourself in a bear market, and by that I mean it's slow, returns aren't very good, the mm -hmm. math is not shaking out in your favor at all. So to press right. pause, especially if you have higher, let's say you're at a 7 8% interest rate on your student loans, or if you have private loans, you might be at a 10% up. Oh, if you have private God, loans, that, get rid of those suckers. Bad. Like It is not worth holding on to the private student loans. Now, if you've refinanced mm -hmm. and it's lower, I get where people are coming from, but I, you have to do the math. And you can you can balance them in depending on what your budget allows for. I mean, my husband and I, he has, uh, I like to say our student loans now, but <laughs> he had some student loans prior to our marriage and we are aggressively paying them down. But I also put a few hundred bucks a month into a taxable investing account because I had been doing that all along. So I like to still have some level of balancing it in, but we still are paying about three times what his minimum payment is in order to get them gone ASAP. So the answer doesn't yeah. need to be all the eggs in one basket. Perhaps it, it could be both and you, you can almost balance. hedge against everything. And you can, and it's, there, everything with investing, there is very rarely a definitive clear cut. This is mm. the end all be all way of doing things because again, with all things money, it is emotional. It is not mm -hmm. rational. Everyone loves to pretend that money is just so rational. We do not behave that way when it comes to our money and definitely no. not when it comes to investing. And so I do think it is critical to bring in, especially if you're dealing with having another person involved, if you're married or in a long-term relationship, you do need to balance in everybody's emotional reaction to things because that's a critical piece of your investing life in general. Yeah. And, and, and like, let's be honest and I, I'm assuming, I'm assuming something here, but we're all dinks, right? Yes. All right. Yes. All right. How do you, what about somebody who I have a friend that I'm thinking of in this whole conversation, not a millennial actually, but, um, two kids, wife, he's the only breadwinner self-employed, right? Started his own business, you know, makes probably 60 to 80 K a year. How the hell, I mean, with with no student loan debt, but credit card debt, how does someone like that, how do you get through using language, using whatever? Because you're, I've uh, even like kind of to tangent for a second, you keep saying taxable account. Oh, if I, I'm, I don't know what the fuck that means. Like you said it and I had to think about it for a second. Like, oh, a brokerage account through Betterment. Right. Okay. I, I put context to it in my own head, but a taxable account, I'm like, isn't all accounts taxable? So... Uh, I guess my question is, is like, what, what about somebody who constantly says to everyone else and themselves, I, how the, I can't do that, you know, and I know that there's like psychological tricks, but I mean, mathematically or more rationally, you know, to get away from the emotional side of things, because you're right, it is emotional. But like, what do you tell somebody who, who feels already underwater? And it's like, you should be investing right now. It's like, oh, thanks for adding to my anxiety, because I was already drowning. First of all, taxable, I'm just referring to non-retirement accounts because retirement accounts are tax deferred and- So as, you're talking about a savings no, account? No, I'm talking about investing in not retirement like, like accounts. Like a checking account? No, because that's not investing. Checking and savings are not investing accounts. So taxable investing right. would be having a brokerage account open. So a broker or a brokerage is the company that you go through in order to be able to invest because you cannot call up NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange yourself and be like, hey, I would like to buy XYZ. So it's the company right. that you go through. To name a few, just because I think it always helps, I am not endorsing these. I'm just naming yep. names. Mm -hmm. Fidelity, Charles Schwab, Vanguard. You could look at an E-Trade, Ally Invest. Um, you've got your your robo-advisors like a Betterman, a Wealthfront, a Wealthsimple. So those are just names of companies that would be brokerages that you would go through in order to get access. And to get there, you could just add listenmoneymatters.com slash before any of those any of names. Those. And, <laughs> and, what, and like, and like, and like Robinhood, I know they're getting a Perfect. lot of play. Like those. Yeah. So that's apps. And those okay. I would love to dig into later because that's kind of, and it kind of comes back around to mm -hmm. this idea because that's micro investing. So this idea of, I know I should get started, but I don't have a mm -hmm. lump sum to be able to All put right, cool, in. Cool. So we can come back around on those guys. So let's put a pin in that one. In terms of this, I'm already underwater, I'm stressed. Well, you mentioned credit card debt, so I want to talk about that first. Mm -hmm. Credit card debt and student loan debt are not the same when you really talk about investing, and the reason is interest rates. Credit card debt, by and large, you are looking at 15 to 30%. Yeah. I'm just going to make the bold statement that you're not seeing those returns in the market. Right. 
So it does not mathematically make sense for you to be slowing down paying your credit cards off in order to be investing in a taxable account. Again, by that, I mean outside of your retirement plan. Yes, if you have credit card debt and you have a 401k, highly recommend you still get the match. So let's say your employer will put in 4%. If you put in 4%, go get that. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned your friend being self-employed. That's when the math starts to, in my opinion, get a little tricky. Because if you don't have the incentive of an employer match, it really can start to feel like, well, why would I put any money into retirement right now? Wouldn't I funnel every extra penny towards getting out of the credit card debt? Mm -hmm. Some of that, truthfully, needs to come down to an age question and when you want to retire. The earlier you start, the better, because compound interest is working to your advantage when you're Mm -hmm. investing. So- Again, in terms of, I'm not going to throw out nitty gritty numbers. I don't think it helps to actually hear them, especially in like podcast form, because I'm a very visual person. I need to write it down. But if you're 25 and you start investing 200 bucks a month into an IRA or a 401k, so that's for retirement. So we're not saying a taxable account, just for retirement into a retirement account. And you only put in 200 bucks a month every month for 40 years, you are still likely to outperform somebody who 10 years down the road at 35 starts putting in 400 bucks a month because you had the advantage of compound interest working earlier and you can put in smaller Mm -hmm. sums of money along the way. The reason I bring Mm -hmm. that up is because if you are trying to balance in paying off credit card debt, it still might make sense. And I would advocate that you still are putting money into a retirement account, even if it doesn't feel like a very big amount. Yeah. Even if it's 50 bucks a month, 25 bucks a month, just something to make sure that you are preparing for your future and putting some money away and allowing compound interest to work for you. Because right now with your credit card debt, it is working against you. Mm -hmm. Now, every extra bit, personally, I always advocate get rid of credit card debt just as quickly as you possibly can and kind of funneling all the extra financial resources towards that. I do not think you should be dabbling in you know, a robo-advisor in the apps and do a, do-it-yourself investing with any of the other brokerages that we mentioned or any others that you might be aware of outside of retirement while you're trying to pay off credit card debt. And I totally empathize with the fact that for a lot of people, you have so many financial obligations that it feels like, I can't do this right now. Mm-hmm. And that is another reason that I like to advocate for people to start as young and as early as they can. Because even if you don't have a ton of money, let's say you're, when I was 23, I was making, I had just gone from making $23,000 to $37,500 living in New York City. Not a lot of money here in New York. And student loans, right? I did not have student loans. I actually made my college decision based on coming out debt-free, which was why I was able to move to New York and make that kind of money and survive. Because I very fortunately had been raised to kind of evaluate purchases like that. And I think of college kind of as a purchase. You were destined to be a personal finder. It really was. That was what (laughs) what the conversation was. But the reason that I put it into that context is because even though didn't have a ton of spare money, still was really important to be putting money away for retirement because listen, life tends to get more complicated, not less. You mentioned Mm, having kids, so you might get married. My husband has student loans, so now it is a force in my life. You might get Mm -hmm. married, and then you're bringing in somebody else's financial situation. You might have kids. Those suckers are not cheap. Maybe you buy a house. That's not cheap either. So even if you're making more money later on, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have more money to put towards other goals or to have for discretionary spending. Um, I want to dive into the language part of things. So I think that's really interesting. Obviously it's your soapbox topic. Um, already. And I, and I, I sort of like, like it, it made, made me sound like a dumb dumb, but I'm like, you said taxable account and I'm like, like a checking account. No, like a savings account. No, I personally know that there's a, those are not taxable accounts, but I feel like I, if I told that I'm just thinking, I have like a, I have a few people in mind when I do this show who, who know I do this show and still are like, I, you know, Teach me, but I also don't care. You know, it's like, tell me everything you know, but if you don't tell me something like, oh, just download this thing and do that, and you'll have money tomorrow, like instant, instant, you know, cash, then they're, it's sort of like they get glazed over, mm-hmm. right? Um, Robo advisor. What a shitty word. It is. What the hell does you that You know what mean? the best part is? It not only is a <laughs> shitty word, one of the people I interviewed for the book, desperately wants to rebrand. He works for one of the big robo-advisors, and he thinks the better word to use is an online financial advisor, which is a better term. 
And it's slightly more. I still hate the word advisor, though. Well, that's a whole different conversation we can have. I know. But that is a better term because it's slightly more accurate. Robo, because we have this fictionalized feeling of what robots do, Uh we think that there are no humans involved at any point in this process. We think it's just magical algorithm that's out there that can somehow predict what the market's going to do and hedge your bets. That is not how it operates. There are algorithms, but they can't predict what the market's going right. to do. If they could, those guys would all be like multi, multi, multi billionaires many times over. They will have solved yeah. everything about investing ever. That's yeah. not what it is. It would is. be pie. Yeah. yeah. That's just not what it is. <laughs> what part of the algorithm is that it's able to then scan for looking at all the different brokerages that exist and all the different options and evaluating expenses on them and comparing them Mm -hmm. and looking more that way in order to build your portfolio. Portfolio meaning all the investments that you have, kind of taking the overarching look at those. So I agree. Robo-advisor is like a term. But what that means, because that's probably what we should be defining, is those are companies that help you invest your money. Mm -hmm. And what they're also doing is they are not, for instance, we mentioned a couple brokerages earlier. So if you're looking at a Fidelity, a Vanguard, a BlackRock, a Charles Schwab, if you go to invest there, you're pretty much just investing directly into their different products. So maybe their index funds or their mutual funds, which are bundles of investments altogether. Mm -hmm. Now, if you're at a Betterment or a Wealthsimple or a Wealthfront, those guys are comparing all the different brokerage firms' options. So you might be in Vanguard and in Fidelity and in Charles Schwab and in BlackRock, not just It's like in one. the kayak of investing. Yeah, that's right? a really great way to put it. Because it, and it it's can just, compare. This is, right, but this is like part of the issue that I have with all of this, all the financial literacy stuff out there. These words, I feel like the word brokerage. Hate <sighs> it. Now, I will say in my book, one of the very early chapters is just a glossary. It's all terminology. So Mm. to tie back to the very, very beginning of this whole conversation, my favorite way to explain asset classes is comparing them to beer. Because, yeah. yeah. Stand stand by. I'm actually, Mm. I'm just going to find it exactly where it is so I can read it verbatim to you from the book. So relevant. But I like, so the way I set up the first part of the book is talking about why it's important to invest and then also talking about are you even ready? I call it putting on your financial oxygen mask. So going back to that whole conversation about, you know, I have credit card debt and I'm trying to do this and I'm trying to do this. You probably wouldn't have finished the checklist. No, you are not ready to go start investing. And then I recommend like, here are chapters that you should go check out. Mm. So when you are ready, this is what you know. Like a choose your own adventure type of thing. Yes. Although I can't say that because it's a trademarked term. Really? So oh, wah, wah. I, I used, like a lot of bullshit. I used it to uh, try to describe my first book and got a cease and desist letter. But that's wow. A okay. <laughs> Language. So asset class as defined in Broke Millennial Takes on Investing. An asset class is a grouping of similar investments. It's like saying IPA, lager, ale, and stout are all beer. Beer would be the asset class with IPA, lager, ale, and stout being the similar investments. And then I go into more about like what the different asset classes are. But yes, I agree. Analogies work and trying to simplify it down. That is on Wait, page, what page 32. Is that on? So very early in the book. So mm-hmm. even to get more uh, beer nerdy on you, uh, a stout is an ale. So it would be, so there's even Your average classes. person doesn't know that. That's true. There's <laughs> classes among classes, right? So there's, true. yeah, like there's beer and then there's ale and lager and then there's IPA stout, blah, blah, blah. So you could go. Yeah. And but then, yeah, you're right. The average well, person yeah. doesn't it could know. Be like so that's tech more like stocks sectors. And there's Apple, sure. Microsoft. Also gets defined later. But yeah, I cool. do so I do think that that's important. And that's why the very beginning of the book has this whole mm-hmm. glossary. Because I'm like, listen, you and the way I like to compare it, and I use this story leading into this chapter, I can so vividly remember sitting in algebra class and not having a clue what was being said because I didn't speak the language of algebra. I did not understand what a coefficient was. So if that got said by my teacher, I'm like, uh, no clue how to solve this problem or what you mean. Yeah, gl- Investing yeah. is the same. There is a common language that gets used when people talk about investing, and you have to start to decode the common language in order Mm. to be able to, quote unquote, play the game and be involved. So that's why 
all the glossary is a first That's card, and I have this whole apologetic disclaimer. I call it an apologetic disclaimer before we get into the terms. And I'm like, listen, your eyes are probably going to glaze over at certain parts of this. You're going to have to keep referring back to it. Certain terms are necessary to define other terms. Like it does get that convoluted, but you have to learn this language because it's also yeah. the language that the firms are going to use, the brokerages are going to use. And that's sure. how that's who you have to go and to. And financial advisors in yep, the future. And that's yeah. who you have to go through to get access. So you need to make sure that they can't take you for a ride because you're just nodding along and not understanding what they're saying. So- I mean, we we spend a lot of time talking about investing things, and I think like the stereotypical millennial. But there are also a lot of there are a lot of millennials who earn a lot of money and are very smart. Hopefully, a lot of them listen to the show, and mm. uh, you know they maybe make a hundred thousand dollars or more a year, just them, and maybe they have a spouse who does the same. Yet they are often statistically as broke a millennial as the ones ah, see why I did that? <laughs> as the ones <laughs> that are earning like sixty thousand dollars a year, right? And they they are maybe contributing a hundred dollars to investments. And mm-hmm. for all of whatever reasons that we could dig into, what would you say to those people? A lot of people that make a lot of money are living paycheck to paycheck. That is not an uncommon experience. Mm. And the very first thing, and this is not a sexy yeah. answer, but the very first thing you have to do is run your cash flow, mm-hmm. which I'm going to be totally honest with you, is a very fancy way of saying you have to have a budget. Mm. And people hate the B word, and I totally empathize, which is why I call it cash flow. Mm-hmm. And you have to just that basically know it is a better word. And it, it's fundamentally what you need to know. How much money is coming in? How much money is going out? What's the difference? And if the difference is a negative number, that's a big problem. Yes. <laughs> so I will say the, that's the first thing that you have to do is you have to see exactly where your money is going because you can't make any decisions at all without knowing and having that information. Right. And part of that too is understanding exactly where all of your debts are, what the interest rates are, being able to make informed decisions. So that would always mm-hmm. be my first recommendation. No matter what you're doing in your financial life, you have to know your cash flow. The other big thing, especially when we talk about investing, is setting goals. And I'm not necessarily even meaning setting investing goals. I mean, what are you looking to achieve in your life in the next one to three years, in the next four to 10 years, and 10 years plus? Because that information is going to inform if and when you should be investing, and once you do start investing, how much risk you should be putting on your money. Because if it's money Mm -hmm. that you need in five years, you're not going to want to take as much risk as if it's money that you're going to need in 30 years. And the reason is because as we've already made abundantly clear, the market goes up and down. So you want to be really careful that if you've got a long, long time, you can weather the ups and downs of the market. You can also be changing your investments because some investments are what we call aggressive, usually are stocks. It's high risk, high reward. Some investments Mm -hmm. are a little bit more moderate and then some are conservative and you will be adjusting how your portfolio, so your bundle of investments, you'll be adjusting that depending on how much risk you want to take, which is all indicated by the fancy term that you're going to hear because I'm squeezing in all of these special words that they use in investing lingo is time horizon. That is just a very fancy way of saying, Mm. when do you need access to your money? That's all that means. Mm. So if you say, I have a time horizon of 20 years, then that indicates to a financial advisor or if a financial advisor asks you, what's your time horizon? And you would say, oh, well, I want to retire in 20 years. That's when I need my money. Right. And so that tells them, okay, at first we're going to be aggressive. Yeah. And then we're going to adjust. Scale back. Yeah. Yep. And so that's why mm-hmm. like goal setting is just fundamentally the most important part of this whole thing. And also mm-hmm. goal that's setting. That's the cornerstone of robo-advisors. Yep. That's how they do their magic as well. Everything. And that to me, when anybody who's in, no matter where you are in your financial journey, if you're paycheck to paycheck trying to dig out, if you've got a lot of discretionary income and you're feeling great, you have to set goals. And whether that's for investing or just for your life and money that you're putting into checking and savings accounts, the mm-hmm. goals are really going to indicate how you're going to be spending. Yeah. I think the two best decisions that I made in, in when I was 25, 26, 27, where somewhere in that range was basically just spending a year and aggressively paying off credit card debt. And that was pretty much all I focused on. And at the same time, that's when robo advisors were hitting the market. That's when Betterment came out. And I was like, oh, 
because I tried doing the stock market. You know, uh, I tell, tell the story constantly on the show, but you know, Howard Stern was coming over from terrestrial radio to Sirius satellite radio. And I had this guy who was like in, invested in the stock market. He's like, how I can't do bad. So I was like, oh, my first opportunity. Of course, like I, you know, it doesn't work that way. I had to learn how to use share builder at the time. And I didn't understand, you know, I didn't understand anything. And then Betterment came out and I'm like, I'm going to put a hundred dollars a month into this thing. That's it. It was such a small amount. But once you start to see that grow, even a little bit, like if once it's at 500 bucks, you're like, oh, shit, I want to make that grow faster. And then I made a hard and fast rule. I can't touch this. And that's it. And I love. And if you. That's it. I mean, well, and I yeah, love the right, incremental part of that story, because to me, yeah. that is the biggest part when it comes to investing is you don't have to start with huge amounts. Like one of the taglines I use for this book is I'm trying to shake the misconception that investing is just for the wealthy. Because I do think that some people mm-hmm. think that way, like you have to be Scrooge McDuck in order to be investing, and that's not the case. And well, to be fair too, true. like being Vanguard funds start at five to ten thousand dollars. Well, so or even a thousand about to to get into is this okay, idea. Cool. Sorry, of, I, I ruined no, it. No, no worries. But minimum initial investments. That's what that is. So mm. that is when you go and try to open an account and it says, hey, great, happy to have you here, but you need $3,000 in order to even open this fund. And a yeah. lot of folks will be like, eh, nope, not for me. I don't have that. Yep. Totally an understandable reaction to that situation. So there are a couple of choices you can take. One, if you know unequivocally, this is the only brokerage that I want to work f- work with. This is the only place I want to put my money. The only option you really have is to put it aside into a savings account until you hit that threshold and then dump it in. But there are a couple of things mm-hmm. you can do. First of all, there are some brokerages that it's, have started to open zero minimum initial investments. So you can just open it and you can put small sums in. Right. You can look for those guys. This is also where the apps can come in. So we mm-hmm. mentioned earlier micro-investing apps. So those are your Robinhood, your Acorns, your Stashes, those guys. Yeah. Now, I think they're overall great option for people, but it is micro-investing fundamentally. Yeah, takes, I, I started When we started this show, I started with Acorns, and I have about $2,300 in there. So. And the, and the thing with that is a lot of people, my, my only concern is a lot of people feel like, oh, great, I can put like just $5 a month into this account. That's very mm-hmm. accessible. True. Problem is it charges you $1, 2 or $3 depending on which version you pick a month in fees. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot of money. I live in New York City. Has, that has been established. It costs me more than a dollar to do a load of laundry. So to just pay a dollar in order to get access to investing sounds like a great deal. Yeah. However, if you're only putting in a couple of bucks a month, it is wiping away your returns. You are not going right. to see returns because of the fee that you're paying. So my rule of thumb with microinvesting is you need to be putting a minimum of $25, preferably $50 a month into the microinvesting app in order to make it actually worth the fee you're paying. And I harp yeah. on fees because that comes back to everything with investing. No matter who you're working with, you need to understand the fee that you're paying. Robo-advisors, for instance, are going to charge a little bit more than if you go the do-it-yourself route with what is known as a discount brokerage, which is a super sketchy sounding term, by the way. Yep. It is not. But basically, it just means they're not providing a one-on-one personalized, per- like there's not a CFP, there's not a financial advisor working with you one-on-one to build your portfolio. You're doing it yourself. So mm-hmm. a Vanguard would be considered a discount brokerage, for instance. Now, if you went over to some place where you've got, you know, the classic Gordon Gecko looking guy coming out, sitting down with you, building your portfolio with you, that's mm-hmm. a full service firm. They usually mm-hmm. get paid by what's That's called- what Robert Kraft went to, I think, right? Is that no? Uh, Is that a bad know, joke? You know, you know. No? Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, but <ugh>. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> They get paid, uh, not who he went to, but these guys get paid by what's called AUM, Assets Under Management. So that would Mm. be they get a percentage of your overall amount that you're investing, usually around 2%. So now 2%, again, might not sound like a ton, but that could be taking thousands of dollars out of your accounts each year compared to if you're paying 0.04% and you're just paying a couple of bucks. That's a really big difference, especially because... Every single dollar you're paying in fees is $1 less that's compounding for future growth for you. So it mm-hmm. that's money that's coming out of being able to grow for you in your future. 
fees. And I have, again, a whole chapter subsection about fees, because that is one of the most critical things to understand when you start investing. And not unlike banks, like we can tie this back to checking accounts. A lot of people get hit with overdraft fees, or they have, you know, those monthly account maintenance fees, which if you're at a bank that charges those, get out, please, for the love of God. I get so angry about those because they will charge you if, let's say, you don't have a daily minimum balance of $1,500. So guess who's paying those fees? It's not the rich customers paying those fees. So no, right, that's right. A, you can tell I get very passionate about that whole conversation. <laughs> but investing similar, akin to where you're doing your banking, you need to know about your fees. Yeah, and you. it seems like you have a lot of like full chapters that cover whole things in your book where it's like it goes deep dive on some things. What are some other chapters that like? Yeah. So yeah, it is you know, truly yeah. a beginner's guide. And I say that because cool. you know, we have a whole chapter that's just, and by we, I mean me, but that's glossary. That is, you know, just getting into all of the nitty gritty. There's a whole chapter that's just dedicated to the concept of student loans and investing. What should you be doing? I have one that's just called, handling uh, your, well, it's all about handling the panic and the fear of the stock market. So kind of the overarching Mm. premise in the beginning, how do you handle it when it goes up, goes down? And that's really kind of a walk through history. Sure. I also, because especially millennials get kind of cited as a generation who cares about the ethics, not to say that our parents or our grandparents did it, but we have more opportunities to really have a critical look at what we're investing in. Because if you invest in, let's say, Mm the S&P 500. So that is a bundle of you are investing in the top 500 companies on the stock market. That's what that means. Well, some of those companies Mm -hmm. are going to perhaps manufacture guns. Some of them might make alcohol. Some of them might be involved in gambling. Some of them might be involved in defense contracts. Depending on your political alignments or religious beliefs, you might not feel comfortable investing in those products. Mm -hmm. So I have a whole chapter also that's dedicated to how can you be investing in a way that aligns with your religious, moral, ethical beliefs. I also do, yeah, I do a deep dive on robo-advisors. Should you do robo-advisor or a human financial advisor? What's the difference? When does it make sense to go with either one? And a big thing too is just breaking down all of the language and explaining what all of this means. Cause I think that that's fundamentally the biggest hurdle that we have to face when it comes to investing. And it's broke millennials, broke millennial takes on investing. Yes. A beginner's guide to leveling up your money. There will be a link in the show notes. Yes. And it's out now, you can buy it on Amazon. Where else can people find it? Barnes and Noble, Powell's, IndieBound, hopefully your local library. If it's not there, please request it. I always like when people can get free access to this information as well. Cool. And where else can people find more about you? So I am at BrokeMillennial.com. You can also find me. I'm very active on Instagram and Twitter. Cool. So Twitter, it's at BrokeMillennial. Instagram, it's at BrokeMillennial blog. And if you want to just email me, if you have a question, you can go to my website, hit contact. That comes right directly to my inbox. Well, thank you, Aaron. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah. It's always been fun. Returning champion. Will you come back on again when your third well, book comes out? <laughs> I have a third book, so I guess I got to. Can you spill any beans on that or no? You don't know yet. I can. So actually, it kicks back to the thing we talked about the first time I was on, which was getting financially naked. And my third book is going to be all about relationships and money. And cool. it's not just romantic relationships. I will say that, too. It's about all the different relationships in your life and how Very to cool. navigate like, those with money. pets and stuff? You know, I should have a whole <laughs> bit about pets, too. But nope, mostly just human focused. Human focused. I like it. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. And... If you missed anything, again, we've talked about this. We'll have everything in the show notes. Either check your preferred podcast app or visit listenmoneymatters.com slash show, which I've been getting better at saying that, by the way. I don't know why. Uh, please are crushing it. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, Please subscribe wherever you normally listen to podcasts and tell your friends about us. That's like a huge thing. Word of mouth is always good. Point them to your favorite episodes. Perhaps this one, especially if you have friends out there, millennial or not, interested in getting investing. One of the biggest ways we've grown is uh, you're listening to the podcast. You you have to you're walking down the street, pause it, take your AirPods out, and just yell "Listen, Money Matters" across the street. That works. Then put them back in and just yeah. keep walking. That's mostly how we've grown. So yeah, and that's how you you you, you want to be the center of attention in your life. That's one <laughs> way to do it. Yeah, that's certainly. Um, yeah, do that. Wait, am I uh, the yeah, only d- one that does that? <laughs> yeah, you're the only one, I think. But now, now more people. Now you're gonna be walking. In, you're gonna be in the subway, and people are just gonna be yelling at you. 
That's you're right. Like, yeah. That's, yeah. Sweet. Um, Get a point life. Them, point them to your favorite episodes, hopefully this one, and maybe they'll become a subscriber and you guys can have something to share. Uh, if you have any questions or topics you'd like us to discuss on future episodes of this show or guests you want us to have on, email us listenmoneymatters at gmail.com. And of course, all the tools and resources we normally mention on the show. And as Andrew pointed out earlier, uh, all the robo advisors and other things we mentioned, just go to listenmoneymatters.com slash toolbox. They're all there. Or listenmoneymatters.com slash enter robo advisor name here. Aaron, thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much. It was great. Appreciate it. Andrew, later, man. Later, dude. Please tell your friends about this show.